This morning, we are continuing a series that we started um, two weeks ago, a series that we're calling Revelation in Red. And uh, in this series, we're taking some time to explore seven unique letters that Jesus dictated, that he wrote through his servant John to seven unique churches in the first century Roman province of Asia. And why we're doing this is we believe that as we eavesdrop, as we peer into the words of Jesus to these unique churches, that the Spirit of God will speak to us hundreds of years removed, thousands of miles away. That the Spirit will have something to say to us, that Jesus will have something to say to his church here in Warsaw today. But what we saw in chapter 1 of Revelation is that there is something about our posture involved in what it is we gain from the words of Jesus. We saw in chapter 1 that there is a blessing, a special blessing reserved not for the person who necessarily sits and just listens to the words and evaluates them and parses them and, and critiques them and grades them, but no, there's a special blessing for the person who leans in and asks the question, what does this revelation require of me? And that is our hope throughout the series, and that's our hope throughout the life of this church, that we wouldn't just be a bunch of people who come and we listen to his word or pick up the book and we read it and just evaluate it and then forget it. We want to be a movement of people who are constantly asking, what does this mean for me? What does this require of me? Um, this morning, we are going to look at the letter written to the second of the seven churches. If you missed last week, head to our YouTube channel or website, and we would invite you uh, to catch up that way. But this morning, we look at the letter Jesus wrote to a church in the city called Smyrna. Um, Smyrna was about 30 miles north of Ephesus, the church we looked at last week. Smyrna is probably the only of the seven cities still in existence um, today in the Turkey area. Um, Smyrna was uh, an, an interesting place. Um, it is considered the birthplace of the great poet Homer, who some of you um, may also know as the creator of the, the minivan. Um, but um, that's funny to me because of the Odyssey thing. But anyway, so <laughs> I have my own sense of humor. So Smyrna um, was a, a pretty significant place. Uh, it was the largest of the seven cities by size. It was second by population. About 200,000 people were resident there at uh, this point in, in time. Um, Smyrna had political significance. It was the favorite of all of Rome's cities. Rome loved Smyrna like a favorite child. Why can't the rest of you cities be like Smyrna? And there was a reason for that. About um, you know, two centuries before this, um, Rome was caught up in a pretty epic battle against another nation for world dominance. Who is going to be the superpower of the world? And at that time, during that cosmic battle, Smyrna decided to go all in with Rome. They decided to back Rome and bank on Rome um, to gamble and say, we believe Rome is going to take this. 
Now, if they had been wrong, we probably wouldn't be hearing about Smyrna today. But turns out they were right. Rome won that epic battle, became the most powerful um, you know, empire on the planet, and they never forgot the loyalty and the backing of Smyrna. And so they bestowed on Smyrna all kinds of privileges that they would not bestow on any of the other cities. They were allowed to build certain buildings in the name of Rome. They were allowed to speak in certain ways on behalf of Rome. And so there was this love affair between Rome and Smyrna. Um, and Smyrna then became one of the centers of emperor worship. They were loyal to Rome. They pledged allegiance to the empire. They pledged allegiance to the Caesar. They pledged allegiance um, to the emperor. Um, and they enforced the pledging of allegiance for everybody who lived in Smyrna. If you live here, you've got to understand we are pro-Rome, and you have to be willing to declare Caesar is Lord. And if you're not willing to do that, you are going to have problems in this place. Smyrna was also home to a pretty large population of Jews, which meant the national religion of the Jews, Judaism, was pretty prevalent in Smyrna. Um, and Judaism is, the, you know, the belief of the Jews that they were God's chosen people. And the reason they believed that is because they were God's chosen people. They believed they were God's chosen people um, who were called uniquely in the earth. And so if you went to Smyrna, lots of Jews, they had their synagogue. They would go and worship and offer sacrifices at the synagogue. And they would strive to obey the Ten Commandments and the 603 some odd other laws. They were pretty devout in that way. Now, what I think was pretty interesting about the Jewish population in Smyrna while we're talking history was that they were super cushy with the Romans and they were super cushy with the Smyrnaeans, the people of Smyrna. They got along really well, which could only mean that at some point or another, there was a little bit of diluting of the Jewish dogma. They were the people who say, God is God and there is no other God except Yahweh. But at some point, they became willing to say, okay, well, Yahweh is still the one and true God in the spiritual sense. But Caesar is Lord in the political sense. And so when, when we pledge allegiance, we are pledging a political allegiance. Spiritually, we still have allegiance to God. And they found this shady compromise where they were still able to say, it's only God, but it's also Caesar. When we say Lord, Caesar is Lord, we mean Lord like you would say a king or like you would say um, a president, or like you'd say a prime minister, or like you would pledge allegiance to a political party, but really God is still God in this place. Um, it was into that atmosphere, into that world that the church was born. And it doesn't take much processing to understand why being a Christian in Smyrna was painful. It was a hostile place to follow Jesus. It was a brutal place to have a church because the Jews 
hated the Christians. And the reason the Jews hated the Christians is because they were devout with their Judaism. And they believed that there is only one true God and his name is Yahweh. And this Christianity thing was started by a bunch of defecting Jews who were traitors and they betrayed the one true God and chose to worship some Galilean peasant who ended up dying a criminal's death. How dare you betray our true God and go follow this Jesus character. They hated Christians. And they wanted to see Christians and Christianity completely extinguished and exterminated. The problem was the Jews weren't influential or powerful enough to carry out said extermination. And so what they did was they volunteered to become spies for the Romans. They volunteered to become informants. And so they would go around the churches and they would start to report what they saw to the Romans and to the Smyrnaeans. And they would start to lie and exaggerate. We saw them, you know, you know desecrating this, this, you know, building that is built in the honor of Caesar. And we heard them saying, cursed be Caesar. And, and we, we heard them plotting to overthrow the Roman Empire. And so that would trigger in the Romans their own hatred for the Christians, which was already great because the Christians refused to pledge allegiance to Caesar, which was a problem from the start. And now they get these reports from the Jews and they would decide, we have got to extinguish the Christians. And so, uh, the Romans would confiscate Christian property to the point where many Christians were left homeless and they'll be walking around dressed like peasants. And then the Romans and the Jews would mock the Christians for looking like peasants. And then they would keep telling them, all you have to do is pledge allegiance to Caesar and all of this stops. And the Christians refused to pledge, and pain continued for them. They would be abused in many different ways. They were thrown in prison and left to rot in their split from their families. They were executed publicly to send a message and stop the movement of Christianity. One of the most famous characters, um, Polycarp, who was one of the leaders in the church there, was said to have been burned publicly by the Romans because he refused to say the words, Caesar is Lord. And the shadiest thing of all is that it was the Jews who were yelling, burn him, and were hurling insults at Polycarp while he died. And it was the Jews that brought wood for him to be set on fire in order to see an end to the Christian movement. All that to say, being a Christian in Smyrna was brutal. Most of the people who I've spoken to who struggle with Christianity struggle in the ways I would imagine the church in Smyrna was struggling. Because when you are going through this kind of pain and when you're going through suffering and when you're going through struggle, that is the place when you are most prone to say, what kind of God is he? Or you're prone to ask the question, where is he? You are prone to ask the question, does he care? And for the Smyrnaeans, they were going through some really dark times following Jesus Christ. It is into their suffering. It's into their pain that Jesus speaks these words. 
And it's as we eavesdrop into the words that Jesus speaks to them that we start to gain a sense of Jesus' perspective on suffering for him. And so if you have a copy of the Bible, we're going to read his words starting at verse 8. Um, we're going to read that chunk of scripture all the way through verse 11. What Jesus speaks to his suffering servants. Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. If you don't have a copy of the scripture, the words will be up here uh, magically here in a moment. If you don't own a physical copy of the Bible, we would love to get one into your hands. So again, end of the service, head to the connection corner and just let somebody know you would like a copy of the Bible and it'll be our absolute privilege to get one to you. Revelation chapter 2. Again, we're going to read um, this section, and then we're going to come back and make some observations. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty. Yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews, but they're not. <laughs> they're actually a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death. And I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. This is such a rich passage speaking such stretching truths to people in seasons of suffering because they said yes to Jesus and said yes to something that Jesus called them to. Because they said yes to Jesus and said yes to reaching into the brokenness in this world, even as you heard from Jake and Abisha just a few moments ago. And we, church, would do really well to, to listen in because some of us are in hard places because we've declared Jesus is Lord and I will declare no other. Some of us are in hard places because we've said yes to follow Jesus and we've found the path to be painful. But we would do well to to listen in because for many of us, those days are coming. I'm not going to lie to you. This is one of the most challenging talks, um, conversations to have, primarily because for most of us, the idea of suffering for Jesus is foreign. It's a thing we hear about for other people, and so we are listening as third parties a couple of degrees removed. 
And yet, if we really want to lean in, we've got to ask the question, what does this revelation require of us? And if we're studying this book correctly, these are truths we have got to become more acquainted with. Because what we'll see in this passage is an invitation to suffer well for Jesus. Who's glad they came to church today? Amen. Woo! I'm sorry to anyone who brought a guest with you this morning. Um, but let's look at what Jesus said to a suffering church and what I believe he would say to us. Number one, he says, I see you. I see you. Verse 9, Jesus says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet in the way that matters most, you are rich. I know, he says, about the slander of those who say they are Jews, these Judaizers, and are not. They are actually a synagogue of Satan, but I know about the slander. I know your afflictions. The word know here is the word that means to fully see. Jesus is saying, I see you. Those are powerful words in the recipe of what it means to, to suffer well for Jesus. I see you. I am intimately and completely aware of every single ache that you are experiencing. I see. Uh, the word affliction um, is, is a word that means the burden that crushes you. I see you, and I see the burden that crushes you. I haven't missed a single second on account of the blink of an eye. I haven't missed the slightest mist in your eyes. I haven't missed the limp in your heart. I haven't missed the slightest tremble of your hand. I see everything you're experiencing on account of me. Can you, by the way, imagine what it would have been like to get this letter from Jesus as a saint suffering in Smyrna at the time, and maybe for the very first time become aware of the fact that, wait a minute, you, you saw the mockery that happened to me three hours ago, and Jesus is saying, I, I, I see you. I see every mockery. I hear every word of rejection. I hear every single threat. I see your threads that everyone is mocking because you look like peasants. I see every single step you take towards the prison cell. I see everything. This would have been reassuring and stirring to the church in Smyrna. And for some of us, this may be the thing the Spirit wants us to hear loudly in our season of suffering or in anticipation of our seasons of suffering. That Jesus sees you and the burden that crushes you on account of him. Um, and by the way, I, I was looking at this word and just thinking, how so super gracious is Jesus to even use a word like affliction, especially um, for us in a culture of comparison. I think it's such a beautiful word because he's saying, I see 
the burden that crushes you. And then he gives a number of examples. I see your poverty. I see the mockery. I see the burden that crushes you. This is so reassuring because in, in a culture of comparison, we can be prone to say, well, my struggle and my suffering doesn't count compared to the person on the other side of the world who's enduring the most unspeakable pain. And so therefore, yeah, my suffering is of no significance. And Jesus would say, no, 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 no. I see you. I don't care about the burden that crushes them. I see the burden that crushes you. And the burden that crushes you may be different from the burden that crushes them, but I see the burden that crushes you. Well, listen, I want... It's not like I'm her. She's a single mom whose husband walked out on her because she insisted on standing on the principles of Jesus. And now she's working three jobs to raise four kids, and life is hard for her. And, and what, I'm supposed to somehow, you, you know, think Jesus is going to care about my situation because my 15-year-old won't talk to me because I didn't let them go to that party where I knew the things happening there are destructive. That doesn't count. And Jesus would say, no, on account of you standing on my principles, I see the burden that crushes you. Don't worry about what crushes them. Well, but I've heard about martyrs on the other side of the world, and what's the big deal that my friends mock me at school because they found out that I go to church? I mean, and my office co-workers are constantly giving me a hard time, and the boys are always teasing me because I'm a prude, and I won't send them these pictures. Like, how can I really come? And Jesus would say, no, 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 no. I see you in your unique brand of what uniquely crushes you. And I think this is something that for some of us, we need to just maybe store away and maybe hear for the first time that in your home, he hears the words that are spoken on account of what it is you believe. At your family get-togethers, he hears what's happening. I love this word because we won't all suffer the same afflictions, but we all have the same Savior saying the same thing. I see you. And if I'm going to suffer well, I must believe what Jesus says here. I see you. But then he carries on. I don't just see you, he says. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm not just aware. I am here. I'm not just watching you. I am with you in these moments. Verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna writes, These are the words of him who is the first and the last. The first and the last. That's a way Jesus likes to speak of the fact that he is in the midst. It's Jesus' way of saying, hey, I was here before this thing all started, and I'll be here after this thing is done. Read between the lines. And you will discover that I am all up in the in-between. It is his way of communicating to his people, I am here in the present, I am here with you in the now. Not just watching you, I am with you, which would have been huge for them because you know there is something about pain or suffering or rejection or affliction that makes us ask, where is Jesus? There is something about the presence of pain that often 
tries to convince us that this means the absence of his presence. And Jesus tells these suffering servants, I, I not only see you, I am sitting with you in this puddle of tears. I'm sitting in you with your silent treatment from your kids. I'm sitting in you as you, sitting with you as you experience this mockery or this rejection. I am sitting with you in the prison cell. I can imagine what this would have done for the Smyrnaeans as they hear these words coming from Jesus in seasons when the lies start to whisper, he's forgotten about you, he doesn't care about you, and then they get this word, no, 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 I am with you in the midst of it all. And for some of us, that may be something the Spirit wants to speak or may want us to store. If we're going to learn to suffer well, we need to recite this simple anthem. He is with me here. He's with me now. He's with me still. And then Jesus borrows from um, the kids in our generation, and he says, and I, I feel you. Um, I feel you. Now, for those of you who aren't looped into 21st century colloquialism, let me update you. I feel you um, is kind of like a contemporary slang way of expressing empathy. It's another way of saying, yeah, I get it. I get it. I feel you. Uh, the problem is that most of the time we say that we really don't. We really don't feel, we really don't feel you. We really don't get it. And most of the time, we really don't care to, um, by the way, which can make it one of the most insensitive things to say, I feel you when I really don't, is not awesome. Um, have you ever had somebody tell you they get it, and you just know they don't? You know, I have friends of different shades. And so if I am saying... Like, man, I'm just telling you right now, like, I live with a certain degree of concern for my kids in the racial atmosphere in which we're living. And they're like, I feel you, buddy. I'm like, I don't think you do. No, I don't think that's fair to say. You know, um, I don't think you feel me. But... Um, or it's like I feel like I'm in the middle of like a, you know, good old boys club. And no matter how hard I work, I can't break through because I'm a woman. And you're like, I feel you. No. No, you don't. No matter of fact, dude, you have no idea. We have no clue. Now, there's a certain level of understanding that's only reserved for the person who's experienced what you're experiencing, someone who has walked what you are walking, someone who has sat where you sit, someone who has suffered what you are suffering. Enter Jesus into the pain of the church in Smyrna. He speaks and says, I feel you. No, really, though. Verse 8. Uh, to the church, to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. Um, 
Let me make a quick mention of this, because this is really interesting. Uh, In chapter 1, John, who's writing these words on Jesus' behalf, saw Jesus. Jesus appeared to John. John freaked out. When John saw Jesus, he saw Jesus, and he he tried to piece together the different aspects of what Jesus revealed of himself um, on that island. Now, it's really, really interesting that the different aspects that John saw were aspects that Jesus used to introduce himself to the different churches. If you pay attention, you're going to notice this beautiful pattern. So when Jesus, for instance, writes to the Ephesians, Jesus picks the picture that John saw of him walking among the lampstands and says, hey, it's me, the one who walks among the lampstands and holds the stars in my hand. But when Jesus speaks to the Smyrnaeans, the things he picks out is, I am, remember, the first and the last. Remember that picture? And I am the one who died and came back to life again. Because Jesus determines that what the Smyrnaeans needs to know most from him in this season of suffering is that I suffered and I died. I suffered and I died. I walked the path of greatest pain and experienced every conceivable affliction you will ever experience following me so that I could say to you, I feel you. I've been there. I'm not just telling you what I know. I'm telling you what I felt. I'm telling you what I experienced. I'm telling you what I tasted when I walked the same path of pain that you walked. Matter of fact, you've got to know you are only walking it because I walked it first. Oh, I feel you. Unlike every other God, I love that ours has scars so that he could experientially share in our pain, meaning there is nothing you will ever suffer following Jesus that he cannot say, I feel you. I've been there. There's nothing you can ever suffer that Jesus does not know firsthand. And for some of us, that's what the Spirit would want us to know and to store away, that the one who walks with you walked your pain. And even when no one else gets it, and even when you're so tired of trying to explain it to everybody else, there is one who says in every moment of suffering, I feel you. Oh, you're being mocked at school? I feel you. My own family thought I was a joke, and they mocked me most of my adult life. Oh, you're experiencing discrimination. I feel you. Rejection. You're being threatened. You're being falsely accused. You're being arrested. I feel you. Betrayed. I feel you. And you are walking into death. I feel you. I am the first and the last, the one who suffered and died. And I think we will suffer differently when we truly believe that he doesn't just see and he doesn't just sit with us, but he truly has felt everything that we're feeling. And then Jesus says um, one more amazing thing about himself. He says, oh, and by the way, um, I win this. I win this. 
Jesus doesn't just know. He's not just with us. He doesn't just feel our pain. He says, hey, oh, I died, but I came back from it. Look at this. Verse 8, the second part. These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who suffered, died, and came to life again. I, I love that so much, church. Hey, you might want to know, I suffered, but suffering couldn't stop me. Uh, you might want to know that I died, but death could not hold me down. I came back from it. I'm not just with you in empathy. I am with you in power. I conquered pain. I conquered mockery. I conquered suffering. I even conquered death. I don't just walk this path. I win this thing. See, because sometimes we forget <laughs> and we're tempted to think of Jesus as cute little Jesus. He's cuddly, compassionate, and sits with us wringing his hands in our time of struggle, wondering, oh, whatever shall we do? In a British accent, which we all know Jesus um, does not have. Um, nope. The one who walks with us is the one who walked out of the graveyard. Came back to announce suffering does not get the final say. I do. Read the story. I threw the last punch. I win this thing, he says. And if I'm with you, and you are with me, and we are walking together, then you get to win this thing with me. And mockery and suffering and pain does not get the last word. This is not how your story ultimately will end. I win this thing. And church, we cannot afford to forget that. We cannot afford to stop spoiler alerting each other. He wins this thing in the end. And because that's true, he gives a charge to his church. Here's what revelation requires of you. Because I see you, and because I walk with you, and because I walked first, and because I win this thing, here's my charge to you. Verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. You will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death. And I promise I will give you life as your victor's crown. He says, be fearless and be faithful. Be fearless. Do not be afraid. Be fearless. Um, fear here is the idea of being scared away. And Jesus says, do not be scared off. I have called you to run after me, and I've called you to reach after the broken world. Do not be scared off from doing that. You have reason to feel fear, and the devil, he is going to do everything and throw everything at you to try and dissuade you and get you to stop running after me and the things I've called you to. Do not stop 
pressing forward. Be fearless. Now, Jesus doesn't say do not feel fear. That's not what this word means. He's saying do not be stopped by fear. Feel free to feel fear, but refuse to be stopped by it. And so when you see the church trembling but moving forward, this is what Jesus is saying. And then he says, be faithful. Be faithful. Keep doing the things I call you to, even when it's painful, and even when your friends at school mock you, and even when it gets really hard, and it feels dangerous, and even when it's lonely, and even when it's frustrating. Keep going. Keep doing the things I've called you, even when it doesn't seem like the support is coming in, even when keep pressing forward. Keep saying what I've called you to say. Keep sharing what I've called you to share. Keep loving, keep obeying, keep moving forward. I wonder, by the way, what Jesus has called you to run after. I wonder in what ways you know he's calling you to obey him, maybe in a way that you've just refused to, to this point. I wonder what thing has maybe gotten difficult for you and you're tempted to stop or cave in or give in. The Spirit says, do not stop. And the only way this makes sense, because this is really cruel to say to people who are suffering, hey, be fearless, be faithful, which is why we wanted to start this conversation by looking at Jesus and asking, who is he in the suffering? Where is he in the suffering? What does he say about the suffering? Because this only makes sense if we believe that he is with us and that he walks with us and that he wins this thing in the end. Otherwise, it's just cruel and we are crazy and suicidal. But Jesus says, no, I am with you, I walk with you, I win this thing. You of all people can be fearless. Feel the fear, but don't let it stop you. Keep going faithfully. Feel the discouragement, but don't let it stop you. And he tells us, I will crown you with eternal life. I love that, which should let us know pain and abandonment don't get the final say. On the other side of death is life. On the other side of darkness is the most glorious of lights. And how, by the way, do you stop a church that believes this? You don't. Um, <clears throat> now, even a little more than what Jesus says, I know my heart was stirred by what Jesus doesn't say. Did you notice what was missing from the words of Jesus? I'll tell you what was missing. Cute platitudes and false assurances. They don't show up in this passage. What's missing is our broken version of um, comfort and encouragement. What's missing is our whole thing that we do to each other that says, ooh, child, things are going to get easier. That's not in here. 
This whole thing we do with, oh, don't worry, if it's hard, it will get better soon. If you're struggling, it'll get easier soon. Don't worry about it. Hold on. Earthly relief is going to come in just a matter of time. What? Says who? Oh, you've suffered long enough. He'll remove that suffering really soon. Don't worry. It's just high school. The mocking will stop after high school anyway. No, false. Just hold on three more years, and then it will be done. What's missing is any assurance from Jesus that your life is about to get easier. None. And what I fear is that we have helped each other to become a soft church with these cute platitudes and false promises. Telling each other that pain is like a foreign intruder that should never break into our lives if we're following Jesus. What? And so when it does, we go into frantic mode and we put him in the dark and we start to ask questions and and we fall apart or we start to give each other these false assurances about things that are going to change or shift or get easier soon because Jesus' goal is for our lives to feel a little more comfortable than they do right now. Luke 9, 23, Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, count the cost. You're going to need to pick up your cross and follow me every day. 2 Timothy 3 says, if, listen, if you have any desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be what? You will be persecuted. 2 Corinthians 12 says, his power is made perfect, not in comfort, but in struggle. His power is made perfect in weakness. When did we start believing that following Jesus was the easy thing to do. As many of you know, uh, Lord stirred um, our family's hearts a number of years ago, and uh, we said, yeah, you know, to um, adoption. And about seven months ago, we brought home two of our three daughters from Haiti. And uh, I just wanted to give you guys a quick update and and let you know that um, adoption has kicked our butts. Like royally kicked our butts. Like it's kicked our butts from here to sitting on the doorstep of like, did we make a mistake? Is there a different policy about this? It has been one of the clearest things the Lord has called us to do. And it's been one of the most difficult things we've ever done in our lives. It's been painful, y'all. And I found myself getting agitated with Jesus. Well, I'm agitated with Jesus because it's like, wait, you ruined a perfectly awesome story. Like, this could have been so much better if they came home and there was a Chick-fil-A in our backyard and everybody was happy and Jesus is the best. And you ruined a perfectly great story with struggle. We said yes to you. Aren't things supposed to be easy now? And then Jesus and the Smyrnaeans join and they sing a little duet saying like, says who? Who told you this? 
and I find myself agitated, and I find myself looking for the people who I believe might tell me, like, hey, just hold on. Like, this is hard, but like in three weeks it gets better. I'm like, mm, no, it's been three weeks. Next, landmark. Okay, four months it gets better. Like, no, we've crossed that. Mm, still not easy, still really hard. And what I found is I'm looking for somebody to give me something that allows me to put my hope in things getting better. And Jesus speaks to the Smyrnaeans and says, listen, hope is not relief. Hope is the fact that I am with you. I am walking with you. I feel what you're feeling and I win this thing in the end. Your hope is not that it will get easier. Your hope is that it will be worth it in the end. I read this again and I'm like, whoo, give me the grace to believe who you are in the middle of difficulty and to hold on to you and know that we are walking this path with you. And then in the end, whoo, I can't wait, by the way, like when a little life is crowned <laughs> around me and I remember like the wounds were worth it. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you're walking. I don't know what you've said yes to Jesus to. I don't know what you're about to say yes to Jesus to. But can we make the anthem in the church not it's going to get better, but it's worth it. Jesus is with you and he wins this thing in the end. Can that be what we say to each other? I don't know what you're walking, but don't stop. Be agitated. Go for a walk in the trail, tell Jesus some things, but keep moving. Band, come on out. We'll close with a song. Let me, um, let me say this, because there's also a concern for me, for many of you who have no clue what I'm talking about. And I want to say to you, I am sorry and I hope that changes soon. There are many of us who would say, I've never experienced any wound for the sake of Jesus. And I'm telling you, I am sorry. Because the Bible says, if you're going to run after him, you are going to suffer. You are going to experience discouragement. You are going to experience some level of persecution. And I'm just saying, if that's not something that you've ever experienced, I'm sorry, but you need to start asking yourself a question. Which path am I walking on? Have I chosen the path of least resistance? See, because there are ways to make the suffering stop. There are things you can pledge allegiance to, like comfort and people's approval, that will stop the pain and will make your path easier. But in the end, there is no life, there is no joy. And for many of us, we've chosen the path of comfort and a passage like this is useless. Can I come back next week when we're talking about something a little more upbeat? Your life is not being lived fully until you start to say yes to Jesus and until you start to walk painful paths if he calls you to them. I am convinced, this is just me, op-ed, that in heaven one of the favorite conversations will be, what did you suffer for him? What did you lose for him? Oh, months of sleep. Oh, check this out. Check this out. And at the end of it, Jesus will be like, um... I win. 
Spirit, I pray for those who might be going through seasons of discouragement or struggle or pain because they've said yes to you. Send a wind of your presence that they would be aware even in this moment that Jesus is sitting with them and he has never left and never will. Give us a fresh vision of the victory that is Jesus says. He rose out of the grave. Death is not the end. Help us to be fearless. And Lord, I pray for those who have maybe chosen a path that feels comfortable now. I pray for those who are not willing to let their friends know that they are for Jesus. For those who are not willing to pledge loudly, Jesus is my Savior. And I live for him according to his principles. I even pray for parents who are willing to say yes to their kids in order to be friends with them. That they would stand for you. And that as we walk together, we would become convinced that you are with us. And walking with you is a life worth living. It's in your name we pray. Amen.